0: rangeland systems have been the blueprint for for soil health on cropping systems those that have the light bulb went on they're just like you say all in completely invested and constantly looking to improve how can we earn more and improve the landscape how can we improve the environment while making a good living here
1: welcome to the soil health labs podcast engaging ranchers farmers and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome back to another delectable episode of Soil Health Labs podcast. I'm here with Buzz chomping down on some raisins. How are those raisins, Buzz? They're very good. They're very good. Beautiful. I am Bear itself,
2: And I'm the delectable Buzz Clute. <laughs> I need to go to the dictionary and look that up. that one up.
1: And he is the always delectable Buzz Klute. Today, we have the first of two episodes with Tans Herman, who is the one and only state grassland soil health specialist, the only one in the nation to our knowledge.
2: So South Dakota, as usual, is way out ahead of everybody else in terms of soil health. And uh, thanks to previous state conservationist, Jeffrey Zimprich, the guy's on fire. He wants to move that needle in soil health, not only in cropland, but in rangeland. And so Tance, uh, Tance's new position was created, and there were a number, number of applicants, and, and Tance came out. So Tance and I spoke about a number of things um, in terms of, you know, really he's, he's an educator at heart. Um, because that's, that's his background, and, and, and you'll hear about that. But he has a passion uh, to, to, to educate people. And uh, in this first episode, we, we get a little bit of a background, and you know, Tense talks about how he talks to people who might come up to him, him at a conference or, um, you know f- call them up and say hey you know I'd like to talk to you so this is a, a really good episode to give you some of the basics of of the essential Tans Herman um, you know if you look at these amazing grasslands videos s- uh, sometimes you'll see Tans speak especially if the the ranchers are from uh, in and around uh, Sturgis South Dakota and um, you'll see he he's an outstanding communicator. So um, I'm going to leave it at that.
1: Always very well-spoken in all of the interviews and footage I've seen, for sure. So, And I know he's going to have an interesting perspective on this because he talks to so many people.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, just one other thing. Um, you may find there are a few technical issues here. We had a, a, we were on the phone together, or at least um, on Zoom a Zoom call, and every now and again there's a little glitch or you know a, a little bit of silence. So uh, forgive the technical um, the glitch uh, the, the technical errors. Um, it still is a a very very good podcast, um, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it
1: technical errors, or just times when Buzz is reaching for his uh, raisins over there. You know, one or the other. But we'll get out of the way and let you guys decide for yourselves. This is the first of two episodes with Tans Herman.
2: Tans Herman, it's, uh, it's really good to have you on the Growing Resilience podcast, um, it's it's been a while since we saw each other. I think we were on the Snyder Ranch and then on the Grubel Ranch uh, a few years ago. Yes, uh, that's when we met. And uh, certainly, I see you in a lot of the um, videos from the Grassland, uh, the the Grass uh, Amazing Grasslands Project.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's it's good to see you. Um, you recently had a career change. So tell us a little bit about that before we we dive into TANCE and what TANCE is up to right
0: now. Sure. Well, yeah, I served as the district conservationist for USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service in the Sturgis Field Office, which is in the southern portion of Meade County, right on the northern edge of the Black Hills, for over 10 years as the district conservationist and for those four or five years as a soil conservationist prior to that. And I really got my my fire lit for soil health, uh, courtesy of of uh, I, I consider them the giants in in the world of soil health. I, I think of the the Gabe Browns and the Jay Fuhrers and the Dwayne Becks of the world, um, as well as our our local and state resources as far as producers who've jumped on the wagon and and really started to make changes in their in their operations related to soil health. Oftentimes those changes aren't always that large, just requires a a mindset change. And the power of observation then takes over and folks begin to see the good things that start to happen on the landscape when they, instead of trying to, um, what's the word? Instead of trying to force nature a certain outcome uh, they're observing how nature naturally works and then uh, accommodating that in their, in their management. And it, we just see changes. So that lit my fire. So then back in may I was fortunate enough to be selected for this new position with NRCS in South Dakota. Um, maybe the only one in the, in the nation. Uh, I don't have that on, on absolute confidence, but my supervisor tells me that, uh, a lot of states are are looking at this as a, a possible way that they can bolster soil health in their own states, and that is to have a grazing lands focused soil health specialist. And that's the position I'm in here with South Dakota NRCS now.
2: Okay, wonderful. Well, congratulations for that. We will stick a pin in that because I want to come back to why it's so important to have a grazing lands specialist. But let's uh, jump back a little bit again, Tance, and tell us about um, you tell us about your background, where you went to school, and how you you started your career.
0: Certainly. I graduated high school yeah from Chamberlain, South Dakota, south central part of the state, right along the Missouri River. Both of my folks worked in town, but both related to agriculture. My dad was a grain elevator manager there in Chamberlain for a number of years, and my stepmom, Was a a financial products advisor, Um, so a lot of her customers were ranchers. She wasn't necessarily working in agriculture as far as commodities trading or anything of that nature, but her customers were were the egg community in that in that town, and I really enjoyed their stories about work. You know, the you know cleared of details as far as names and things of of that nature are concerned, because both had some some. Uh, Private, privately identified information that they couldn't share uh, outside of the workplace, but uh, my best friends were the children of ranchers and farmers, and and, uh, I was active in the FFA, uh, ultimately became the state president for South Dakota FFA for one year, and just have always rubbed shoulders and clearly and truly identified with the ag community. That's where I fit. I've always been into horses and rodeo and things of that nature, and love livestock. And really wanted, uh, as a as a late teenager and early 20-something, to to work in production agriculture. But as I mentioned, folks working in ag business, we just lived on a little acreage outside of town. I didn't have that ready path into production ag that that I really wanted, and the opportunities outside of mortgaging my entire working career to get started. Uh, they just weren't coming so once I was in school at South Dakota State University in Brookings I pursued ag education I thought well if I if I can't find my path into production agriculture why not work in a way that that I can equip the next generation of farmers and ranchers with knowledge and a skill set and courtesy of that uh, did the student teaching and things and and Basically, came to the conclusion that while I loved educating students, uh, I wanted a standard of living that was a little bit higher than South Dakota teachers have. Um, no offense, and I truly appreciate them, and I get to work with them a lot in my in my role as as a soil health specialist by visiting classrooms. But it wasn't the path that I wanted my family to take. As far as the the financial side of things, I landed with the State Association of Conservation Districts on a watershed project working out of an NRCS field office in Belle Fourche. in June of 2003. I started that job and I just immediately found that this is the right spot. This is the context that I can be involved in production agriculture, but not have to have that that giant land payment um, and equipment overheads and things of that nature to get started. I've learned since then that it doesn't take a mountain of cash to get started in agriculture, um, courtesy of a lot of products like you put out, Buzz. But um, that job with SDACD introduced me to NRCS, and in 2005, an opportunity to apply for a soil conservationist position with NRCS and Sturgis came up, and uh, and I was successful in getting that job. And and i've been with usda ever since
2: wow that's that's so cool that's so cool and you've already told us a little bit about how you got enamored with uh, soil health um my background is in aquatic sciences and my falling in love with soils was when i realized through my conversations with ray archuleta that soils could change and it was a little bit like a sort of a, a a religious moment you know an epiphany it's like wow i've been missing all this all along
0: mm-hmm.
2: well, that, that's great i i i wanted to ask you a question something that really surprised me and that i still think about is um we've spent a lot of time and energy on soil health in the cropland context. And I was so surprised that uh, folks who manage rangeland are, you know, are often unaware of or or less aware of soil health. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that now that you perhaps, well, you've you've been working with rangeland managers for a while. And how come we see that disparity between the guys doing cropping and the guys doing the ranching?
0: I think that that difference buzz maybe comes from. A a purely economic perspective. Uh, Farmers, you know, the cropping side of things are constantly faced with decisions on inputs that then directly correlate to yield returns whether it's their their planting mechanisms fertilizer herbicide applications or or any pesticide for that matter wouldn't have to just be herbicides Um, you know what's the next crop to be planted on this field and things there's a lot of moving parts and changing any one or series of those constituent parts has either positive or negative impact on that end yield. It's, a, you know, a 12-month type of of mindset. I know that our soil health practitioners see crop, cropping systems from more than a 12-month perspective. But truly, you know, that, that cycle com- completely starts and stops every 12 months. Whereas on the rangeland side of things, we don't necessarily have that direct mental correlation of year in and year out that that we have to do this to make a change you know I, i'm not going to be planting a new crop my crop is already there it's perennial it will bounce back next year and we pray it rains right and so that we can continue to to stock at least in some measure uh, the same that we have in the past and 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 that so i think that disparity between the cropping systems and rangeland managers uh, recognition of soil health is you know unless you're truly watching those those plant communities and watching for change uh, on a perennial system the the recognition that what we do on the landscape with livestock and management decisions for rangeland it doesn't change all that rapidly unless we make some fairly significant management change so it may be just a, a simple matter of being taken for granted because we're not spending all this money on inputs to make rangeland productive. It's more about just the decisions we make, how many animals are we going to stock there, what kind of animals, and how long will they be there? Yeah, that makes
2: sense. I, I guess the other thing that uh, more and more I've seen in terms of economics is if you have a look at you know what folks are putting out there, there are many folks that really, you know, looking at uh, the, the cropping systems and then looking at things like cover crops and, and other ways of doing crops and and not that much in terms of soil health and range management. Uh, because I, I guess you, you people like Alan Savory were around. A, a, a long before we termed this or coined this phrase soil health. So yeah, that's that's interesting. Um. What I find is that the guys who. Are into managing their rangelands well really seem to be all in with this stuff, so that's really exciting to watch.
0: That's true and and you know. Rangeland systems have been the blueprint for for soil health on cropping systems, and so like you said, Buzz, those that have have. The light bulb went on uh, they're just like you say all in completely invested and truly dedicate a lot of thought to the how and why they do the things they do related to grazing lands management and and it isn't just about how many well in, i'm going to use the majority example how many cattle can i put in there and it's not just about how long will they be there Uh, those practitioners look at it like are cattle the right the right class of animal do i need to consider another species to stock here they're looking at are there ways that i can get more grazing days out of out of this parcel of land that i already control Um, simply by management you know changing that season of use or that turn in date Um, those poly wire and short short duration high intensity grazing pencil out for this operation do we have the means to do that and constantly looking to improve how how can we earn more and improve the landscape how can we improve the environment while making a good living here
1: we'd like to briefly interrupt this episode with a word from our sponsor the natural resources conservation service did you know that the nrcs offers free one-on-one consultation on your operation Give your local NRCS office a call, or for more information, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. And now, back to the podcast.
2: That'll bring me to another question that I have. You've started out in the rangeland soil health field, and as far as I know, you are also the only one in the country. I, I don't know of anyone else. Talk to me about how you're going to talk to someone who may be receptive a, a year-round or a seasonal grazer who grazes from middle of April to November and then feeds hay from November uh, to to when when it greens up again. Talk to me about what are the talking points of, of how you're going to speak to that person?
0: Well, you've kind of laid the groundwork there, Buzz, and and. You know that. Early early to mid spring on through the end of the growing season is, is fairly typical for Western South Dakota and that's where my focus is is at. Although uh, I'm certainly available for folks all, all throughout South Dakota. Um, I probably am going to ask some questions to make sure that, that I start on the right foot and don't go down a path that that, uh, that turns them off or, or is unnecessary. So. Um, you know, I'll ask you know, how many paddocks or pastures are are in your your grazing rotation. What does that look like to start with? How many animals are we talking about, and roughly how much do they weigh? Just so that I have some some basic knowledge of how many animal unit months they're they're dealing with. Um, this is in in particularly true if if I can't get boots on the ground to have this conversation. Maybe we meet at a conference or something like that. Um, I'm likely to ask do they do they own that hay ground that they produce that winter feed on um, or do they purchase that Uh, because that's going to be a a fairly significant uh, piece of the equation there and I'm going to ask them what their opinions are related to the term holistic management or adaptive grazing management and the response to those questions particularly holistic or adaptive grazing management will then maybe guide uh, the next steps forward. If they're familiar and can can respond that that, you know, with a holistic mindset, I'm not only looking at the landscape, I'm looking at my finances, my labor availability, wildlife habitat, soil health, water quality, all of those things. If they've indicated that they have an understanding of those concepts then I know I'm not going to, A, blow their mind, or B, turn them off if I start walking into those topics then that are related. We'll talk about the seasonality of of grazing. Um, Cool season grasses and warm season grasses, along with cool season broadleaves and warm season broadleaves. And if they understand those growth curves, I'd like to know what they think their operation is primarily comprised of. If they have a fairly good warm season component present, or if like many ranches in South Dakota, they're fairly dominated by by cool season grasses. Um, hopefully Western wheatgrass, green needle grass, but it's possible that there'll be those cool season invaders like smooth brome, Kentucky bluegrass, or crested wheatgrass. That fact set will really guide how we move forward. If we're truly na- native dominated, then we can just talk about the the importance of rotation and rest and recovery, along with of course appropriate stocking rate and and managing for living roots as much as we can. If we're if we're invader dominated, or if there's maybe not dominated, but if there's a significant invader component, then we really need to talk about that that uh, get get on those pastures that are of utmost concern that have the invaders present early not present, not president, present early. (laughs) Um, Get some utilization, get some good out of those things that we probably wanna put the brakes on and then initiate that rest period so that the native cool seasons can come on and then we can move through that rotation. I'm gonna talk about other opportunities uh, for their own learning because we can have a conversation and I can, can impart some good wisdom uh, as a technical professional but the real value comes from ranchers learning from ranchers whether it's at the coffee shop or across the fence or or what have you the grassland coalitions grazing school and the soil health coalitions soil health school are almost immeasurably valuable to the folks that go through them even if they're career-long ranchers or career-long farmers with livestock involved the feedback that i get to hear from those individuals that were doing a good job but were seeking to do better it's amazing it's like i didn't know all of the things that that were possible related to soil health related to gosh you could really put that many animals in a small paddock and A, they're not gonna break out. B, they're gonna be happy, they're gonna they're gonna gain more weight more rapidly, and my land is improving at the same time if if all I'll do is take the time and effort to plan it out and then move them every day or every couple of days or every week, then watching ecological processes that that are just present in nature the recovery process begins. We've had a very high impact for a short duration of time. And the soil just responds, and the plants respond, regrowth, and biology takes over. Insects and earthworms and and uh, invertebrates, mycorrhizal fungi, and, and the whole recovery process that happens when a plant is raised off or trampled or maybe urinated or defecated on you know the presence of dung beetles this whole soil food web responds when that use is intense but short on the flip side if we compare that to that season long grazer and i'm getting i'm still circling back i'm still trying to understand this person's their normal operating mode but you like you said if they're receptive if they're more of a season long grazer I can come contrast all of the good and all of the activity that occurs courtesy of grazing and that plant's response to to go ahead and do more photosynthesis and grow more leaf compared to that season long grazer that is a long occupation it may also be a fairly intense disruption or, or use uh, as compared to a short duration high intensity but I'm going to compare it to if you and I went to the Golden Corral or some other restaurant that is a buffet style serve yourself deal. That's what livestock get to do in those season long pastures. They just get to go and eat ice cream and candy and dessert to their heart's content. And while that may be okay for animal performance, it's not the best for those plant communities that are more palatable and more preferred. Uh, for that class of grazing animal over time particularly if that pasture is occupied for the same time frame year in and year out the prevalence of those ice cream or or preferred plants is going to decline and pretty soon we're left with something less desirable possibly those cool season invaders or exotics that we've talked about already but possibly it could be another native that's just not nearly as palatable, not nearly as productive, um, and probably also not as good as far as water infiltration and, and rooting structure is concerned. As we, we talk about, at least int- internally at the agency, we, we with the r- range line managers, we talk about these functional and structural groups. Is this a bunch grass or is it a rhizomatous grass? Um, what's the rooting depth? You know native rangelands that are well managed are diverse there's bunch grasses and rhizomatous grasses there's cool and warm season species all working together right throw in the forbs and the and the and the shrubs on those sites that have shrubs or trees and we've got this diverse soil food web but the more we simplify that system by just saying it's season-long grazing the the less complex that that pasture will become. Complexity in perennial systems is our friend. Complexity in annual systems is our friend. That's the diversity component of the the five principles of soil health. That's why rangeland, among the reasons why rangeland is the blueprint, is that well-managed perennial range is the goal. Uh, All ecological functions are performing at or very near capacity. Where if we're growing one monoculture in a cropping system. that we have to accommodate those those ecosystem processes over the series of years in that crop rotation the best we can and cover crops really help fit that niche too. So back to your original question buzz. Um, you know, there's a number of ways that conversation can go, but of course, I'm going to mention the five principles of soil health. Uh, livestock is implied. You know, the fifth one, make sure livestock are integrated. If we're talking rangeland, we we presume that is the case. But uh, soil armor, you know, we can't take those plants too short. We've got to keep that soil protected. And there's just a few ecological sites in our state that we expect to have any amount of bare ground. So if we're seeing exposed soil, that's our starting point is that we need to figure out how we can leave more behind so that soil is impact of raindrop and erosional processes I've heard Stan Bolts say rather than on the cropping side where we need to eliminate or reduce disturbance to the soil as much as we can I've heard him say let's optimize that disturbance grazing is a disturbance right hoof impact does it rain while they're in that particular pasture that might even enhance or increase that, that amount of disturbance? And so we're just looking at the right amount. We want plant material pushed down in contact with the soil, but. We don't want to see large expanses of exposed soil. Um, enhancing diversity. The third principle uh, there we're really talking about season abuse. You know, are you use, using these pastures at the same time year in and year out, or is that is that mixed up? You know, are we changing that by a minimum of two weeks? Ultimately, we'd like to see maybe even a four or five week change, if not more, uh, on those turn-in dates because again, animal selectivity or preference for grassland plants changes as the growing season progresses. And so changing that season of use when we open the gate to that next piece of fresh grass. Is really important in in enhancing that diversity. It will not be as complex if we open the gate on the same day or the same week, year in and year out. And then finally, the the living roots component. It's like livestock, it's implied. There's living perennial plants out there that are, are doing respiration. 12 months out of the year, even under a snowbank in some cases. And in the frozen condition, yes, it's at a much lower rate, but those plants are still communicating with the biology associated in the rhizosphere in the soil, even in the winter months. It's just at a, a much slower rate than it is in, say, June. So that's a long path of a conversation, but there's a whole lot of give and take in in conservation planning and visiting with with land managers. Um, I think that effectively done conservation planning is more about listening and then responding than it is about telling and teaching and leading. Um, my job is to plant a seed, and like you say, when they're receptive, you know, asking those questions about tell me more about diversity or tell me more about the importance of soil armor Um, you know because i'm i am what i would consider young i'm in my 40s but i've i've been watching agriculture practices and and what we might term good farmer or good rancher my entire life and i'm seeing what historically folks might say a good farmer or rancher does i'm seeing that definition change from time to time not time to time but over time as a child i can remember a good farmer having nice black tilled fields and very few weeds and tight fences now especially if you're in the in the in the regenerative or holistic or adaptive type circles that black-tilled field is is a recognition of, oh, my gosh, we still have work to do. <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. <laughs> on, on the rangeland side, you know, the good range manager is out there with their weeds and has tight fences and has nice livestock that uh, are pretty uniform, Um. and it might have just been a golf course, but their fences were tight and their weeds were taken care of. Uh, and they're involved in the community. And those are those are all good things. But they're missing something, and that is the the natural ecosystem response to grazing at appropriate levels and really watching and taking their cues from from the earth. Moving on. you know i I listened to your podcast uh, with or one of them, one of the conversations with Dwayne Beck, and he referenced, you know, these soils and these plants, uh, you know, after creation, they they developed under huge herds of bison that would come and then be gone for a year or maybe longer. They just decimate the landscape, but then be gone. They'd only be here for maybe a week at most and then be on to some other place miles away. Well, The human influence doesn't work that way, right? (laughs) We've all got our little piece of the pie, uh, the American dream, and when we fit on these acres and we have this many animals, so the best way for us to mimic that natural process of large herbivores moving across the landscape is to do it at a smaller scale. We're not going to be moving them miles and miles to their next piece of, of grazing. They're just moving to the next pasture whether those are separated by a permanent or temporary fences is irrelevant for, for that conversation. It's just that we're not going to spend too much time here. Because plant community dynamics shift with increased grazing pressure, and they almost always shift to less palatable, less productive, and, and less profitable types of things under longer duration of, of grazing.
2: I'm going to put some of these suggestions that you have. And if you don't mind, I'll put your email in the show notes if people want to contact you, if that's okay.
0: I would certainly welcome that, Buzz. Wonderful, wonderful.
1: Well, Buzz, what's your biggest takeaway from this first episode with Dan Sermon here?
2: Well, my biggest takeaway from my first episode with Tenz Herman is I'm worried about my job um, as the interviewer for mm. the this podcast uh, because mm. I think Tenz Tenz really uh, is a fabulous communicator. So um, I, I, I loved his some of his analogies, you know, when he talks about um, the golden corral po- uh, uh, the, um, buffet, a, as you saw. So. Um, He's very good at at bringing some of those things up and bringing them into everyday language. Um, The next podcast, um, we decided to split this in two. And the next podcast, we uh, talk about the five principles of soil health. Um, uh, We also talk about adaptive management because Tance is is also really keen on adaptive management. And we kind of go into that. And then... um, we talk about the completely uncontroversial subject of how we graze cool season grasses. Do we graze them down into the ground or do we kind of graze them like we graze our other stuff? And uh, I asked Tans this, que- uh, uh, this question and I think he was very eloquent in being able to give the pros and cons of each side. So if you want something that's completely uncontroversial, uh, hope- hopefully you will stay on for the next episode with Tans.
1: Yeah, so we hope you guys check out the next episode with Tans as well. Be sure to check out the show notes, as always, for free resources from the NRCS. And don't forget to remember the R's. Rotate, rest, recover. For the whole Soil Health Labs team, I am Barrett Self.
2: And I'm Buzz
1: Klute. And keep it resilient.